0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Can you believe this year's halfway over? So much has happened. Time flies. Sometimes you go, 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 and you look up and six months just flew by. I'm still hoping to get some traveling in this summer and see my family. So important. Even with everything going on, it's important to remember to slow down. Take a minute to reflect and make adjustments for the rest of the year ahead. And if you need a little help with that, therapy is an excellent option. Personally, it helps to have an allotted hour a week where I can stop and think about myself, things I'm working on, issues that come up, and refocus on goals I'm working towards. You can work through anything, not just major traumas. Self-care is not selfish. If you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, and all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get started. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So take a moment for yourself. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Serial Killers. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: In March of 1970, 13-year-old Joey Fancher awoke to an unfamiliar voice. He looked around, head ringing, naked in a stranger's bed, A long-haired man stepped out of the bathroom and flatly stated that he was going to work. Then he left a bewildered Joey alone in the apartment.
0: The frightened boy tried to pry himself out of bed, but waves of pain crashed through his body. He could barely move as he recalled hazy but horrifying memories from the night before.
1: Joey retched as he remembered the shaggy-haired man pinning him down. He tried to fight back but everything went black.
0: In a panic, Joey staggered into the living room, aching all the way. He froze when he heard a knock at the door.
1: The voice on the other side called for Randy. Joey stayed quiet, and after a few seconds, the voice left.
0: The boy waited until the coast was clear before leaving through the front door. The foggy memories of the previous night would forever haunt him, Decades later, Joey Fancher realized he had narrowly escaped one of the most sadistic murderers California had ever seen.
1: Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a podcast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're covering Randy Steven Kraft, the scorecard killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson.
0: Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar.
1: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: Between 1971 and 1983, Randy Stephen Kraft stalked the streets of Southern California, killing, torturing, and mutilating somewhere between 16 and 67 boys and men. This week, we'll look at Kraft's early life, from his sheltered suburban upbringing, to his first three violent murders. Next week, we'll cover the height of Kraft's violence, as his sinister rampage transformed him into one of the most prolific serial killers in history.
1: To his parents, Harold and Opal, Randy Kraft was the perfect son. They, along with Kraft's three sisters, doted on the boy. Everyone spent long hours nurturing him, taking him to church, and encouraging him.
0: Kraft's childhood was characterized by strong love and support from his family. His upbringing was much brighter than the childhood of a typical serial killer.
1: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
0: Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Experts have long studied and debated the role of nature versus nurture in the development of psychopathic killers. And although the list of criminals with traumatic childhoods is long, those with normal upbringings aren't rare either. The Minnesota Twin Study, led by Professor of Psychology Thomas Joseph Bouchard Jr., showed that psychopathic traits are due more to biology than to upbringing. The study points to brain abnormalities as the immediate source of psychopathic traits.
1: It's likely that Randy Kraft either inherited his psychopathic tendencies or they were triggered by damage to his brain early on. The latter is more likely, given that he experienced a serious head injury as a young child. In 1946, when he was two years old, Randy tripped and fell down a flight of concrete steps.
0: But as Kraft grew into adolescence, he showed no signs of brain damage. In fact, he was highly intelligent. His middle school classmates described him as a likable nerd, quiet and courteous.
1: Kraft wasn't just book smart. He seemed to excel in any activity he undertook. He played the saxophone in the school marching band, participated in Boy Scouts, and placed as one of the top four seeds in his school's varsity tennis team.
0: He was mild-mannered in every respect, except when it came to politics. At 13 years old, he identified himself as a fervent Republican and frequently engaged in heated debates with his classmates.
1: This continued into high school. There, he became fast friends with two other boys, who shared his passion for conservatism and academic achievement.
0: By 1960, the three of them were inseparable. Together, they cruised around town, mingled with kids from other schools, ogled girls at Huntington Beach, and picked up dates.
1: To his friends, Kraft seemed just as enthusiastic as the other boys when looking for a girlfriend. But in reality, it was all just an act. Kraft realized early on that he had no interest in girls.
0: Unable to come out, he became an expert at hiding his sexuality. As he grew used to hiding parts of himself, he also hid his growing, darker impulses. Most of his classmates and teachers found him to be congenial, bright, and gifted. But one teacher noticed something sinister about him.
1: Kraft's chemistry teacher, Lee Manley, found him to be obstinate, a defiant student who thought rules didn't apply to him. Manley even noticed that Kraft went as far as to make up his own rules when it suited him.
0: No other teacher reported having the same issues with Kraft, which could show his uncanny ability to suppress his worst impulses when he wanted to. According to a study out of Virginia Commonwealth University, successful psychopaths, described as those that lead successful and socially integrated lives, are able to go undetected because of their more developed ability to inhibit their antisocial impulses.
1: His behavior in Manley's class stood out, but otherwise Kraft had few slip-ups. Despite the failing grade he received in chemistry, he remained an honors student throughout high school. In June of 1963, he graduated 10th out of a class of 390.
0: That fall, he enrolled at Claremont College, an all-male school in northeast Los Angeles County. He studied economics, and during his first couple of years, he remained a staunch conservative.
1: While most colleges became a hotbed of anti-war activity in the 60s, Kraft participated in Claremont's pro-war demonstrations. Ironically, when he received his own draft notice, he requested a deployment postponement so he could finish school.
0: While his early college experiences did little to change his politics, Claremont did change one major aspect of his life. It allowed him the freedom to explore his sexuality.
1: In his sophomore year, Kraft quietly began his first relationship with another man named Mike. Kraft recalled being deeply in love with him and even brought him home to meet his parents. Although he didn't present Mike as his boyfriend, Kraft hoped his parents would read between the lines.
0: Back on campus, Kraft continued to keep his sex life private. Few of his fellow students suspected he had a part-time job bartending at a local gay bar called The Mug.
1: The bar opened a whole new world to Kraft. While there, he learned about cruising subculture, a gay bar hookup culture defined by easy flings and a lack of emotional attachments. Cruising was prevalent in Huntington Beach, only miles from his conservative hometown.
0: His sexual escapades grew more and more daring. In 1966, 21-year-old Kraft was arrested for propositioning an undercover vice officer. The charges were dropped since it was his first offense, but the arrest spooked him. And it was another two years before he tried again.
1: By the time he graduated Claremont in February of 1968, Kraft seemed like a different person. He became a registered Democrat and campaigned for Robert F. Kennedy. Years later, in a letter to a friend, he reflected on his right-wing adolescence. I have to chuckle remembering about this. Kids do the darndest things.
0: Although Kraft was now anti-war, he still had to fulfill his draft summons. His deferment from his required military service ended once he graduated. In June 1968, he joined the Air Force and was stationed at Edwards Air Force Base in the California desert.
1: He was charged with painting planes and, if there was nothing else to do, houses as well. He deeply resented this assignment as he felt it was beneath him. As one of the only college-educated men on the base, he thought he deserved more challenging employment.
0: Perhaps motivated by the perceived disrespect, 24-year-old Kraft made a bold decision in 1969. He was tired of living in fear of being outed about the lifestyle he led outside the base. On one of his visits back to Westminster, he finally revealed to his family he was
2: gay.
1: We'll see his family's reaction and the impact it had on his life after this.
2: Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including Headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in the no shoppers get the best savings. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
1: Now back to the story.
0: By 1969, Randy Kraft had fully embraced a gay lifestyle while attending college. He decided it was time to come out of the closet, and at some point during the summer, he told his parents about his sexuality.
1: His ultra-conservative father flew into a rage, while his mother, hoping it was only a phase, continued to show him support. One of his sisters blamed his all-male school for his sexual orientation.
0: But his family's reaction didn't dissuade him from being completely open about himself. A year into his Air Force assignment, he coolly walked up to his commanding officer and announced he was gay.
1: Repercussions soon followed. On July 26, 1969, he received a general discharge from the Air Force, citing medical reasons. Although not as bad as a dishonorable discharge, a general discharge is still considered a slight. Kraft struggled to find his footing after leaving the Air Force. He worked as a bartender at various gay bars along Orange County's Pacific Coast Highway.
0: This occupation facilitated a new hedonistic lifestyle that Kraft embraced fully. Around this time, he also entered an open relationship with a new partner, Jeff Graves, which led him to experiment further with drugs and casual sex.
1: As the months went on, Kraft felt more and more directionless. Frustrated with the state of his life, he leaned harder on the fleeting pleasure the drugs provided. Soon, he was almost completely free of inhibition.
0: In this state, Kraft began to grapple with dark, sadistic sexual urges. The more he tried to keep them in check, the more frustrated he became. Until May of 1970, he finally reached his breaking point.
1: One night on a trip to Huntington Beach Pier in search of casual sex, Kraft noticed 13-year-old Joey Fancher walking all alone.
0: After a short conversation, he discovered Joey had run away from home. The suave 25-year-old had no problem luring the teen boy with promises of weed and alcohol. Joey couldn't believe his luck as he hopped on the back of Kraft's motorcycle and rode up the PCH towards his seaside apartment.
1: At his place, Kraft kept the giddy teen's wine glass full all night. When Joey complained of a headache, Kraft happily offered some pills. It wasn't long before the boy became dizzy and started to black out.
0: In the midst of this haze, Kraft showed Joey pictures of himself having sex. He asked the drowsy teen if he'd ever had sex with a man.
1: Then Kraft disrobed him. Joey floated in and out of consciousness as Kraft sexually assaulted him multiple times over the course of the night. Later, he would only remember the pain and Kraft constantly threatening his life.
0: The next morning, Kraft matter-of-factly informed Joey that he was leaving for work. Once Kraft left, Joey stumbled to a bar across the street asking for help. An ambulance rushed him to the hospital where his stomach was immediately pumped. He was told that if he'd taken any more pills, he would have died.
1: When the police and his parents showed up, Joey directed them to the apartment he'd fled from that morning. He told police that Kraft had drugged and beaten him, too young and embarrassed to reveal the sexual assault.
0: In the empty apartment, the cops found bottles of medication prescribed to Doris Lane, Kraft's sister. Joey then identified his assailant through the pornographic images still on the table.
1: Despite the evidence, Long Beach detectives claimed that they saw no obvious crime because Joey admitted to taking the drugs voluntarily. Making matters worse, authorities had entered Kraft's apartment without a warrant. Therefore, any evidence was inadmissible.
0: Thanks to the police's incompetence, Kraft got away with his first crime easily. The near miss only encouraged him to further act on his sinister urges. Authorities had not only let a rapist slip through their hands, they may have helped create a killer.
1: In the immediate aftermath of the case, Kraft laid low. He worked on improving his day-to-day life and even had some contact with his family.
0: Kraft's parents, although distanced from him since he'd come out to them, worried that their son was wasting his potential. He no longer resembled the ambitious young boy and academic overachiever they once knew.
1: After a string of bartending jobs and a stint as a forklift driver for Arrowhead Water, Kraft went back to school. His parents were relieved when he decided to follow in his older sister's footsteps and become a teacher. It seemed like he was finally getting his life back on track.
0: His personal life also seemed to be on an upswing. He lived freely and openly with his partner, Jeff Graves, in a small beach apartment. They seemed to be a model couple, even going on vacations together to Europe and Mexico.
1: Although they both agreed to have an open relationship, Kraft's jealous nature sometimes got the better of him. Jeff's constant visits to the local bars and overnight absences angered Kraft.
0: On such occasions, he was known to drive around for hours, fuming with rage. Other times Kraft picked up men solely as retribution for Jeff's absences.
1: After one particularly nasty argument with Jeff, Kraft went out driving he went to his usual cruising spots, the triad of gay bars along Sunset Beach.
0: On September 20th, 1971, police believe he picked up Wayne Joseph Duquette, a bartender at Stables. It was likely the end of Duquette's shift when he accepted Kraft's offer to go home with him that night.
1: Two weeks later, Duquette's naked body was found in a ravine off the Ortega Highway, a winding mountain road that cuts through the Santa Ana Mountains.
0: The body had been exposed to the sun for so long that it was bloated and decomposed, making it hard for investigators to determine whether foul play was involved.
1: The only reading forensics could get from the still unidentified corpse was his blood alcohol level. At the time of his death, it was .36, enough to cause fatal poisoning. So, lacking any other leads, police decided alcohol poisoning was the official cause of death.
0: Even though Duquette had been stripped of his clothes and any identifying markers, it didn't take long for authorities to identify their John Doe. His car had been parked in front of stables for days, which had raised concerns.
1: Police asked Duquette's fellow employees who he might have left with that night, but no witnesses ever came forward, and they reached a dead end in the investigation.
0: Wayne Joseph Duquette was the first person to go on Kraft's scorecard, a twisted record he kept of his murders. Duquette wasn't mentioned by name on the handwritten list. It only read, Stable, a reference to the bar the man worked at. Kraft would continue to refer to his victims by code words rather than their names, as the list grew into the dozens.
1: 26-year-old Kraft made sure to keep his list close, tucked under a floor mat in his car. The list only heightened his excitement as he later drove around hunting for victims, hungry to add another tally to his scorecard.
0: In the months following his first murder, Kraft maintained a low profile. In 1972, when he wasn't studying for his teaching credential at Long Beach State, he and Jeff began to cruise together near Camp Pendleton, a military base between San Diego and Orange County.
1: It was filled with the type of men they liked to pick up, Marines. They knew that on weekends, Marines hit the nearby bars, looking for drinks and one-night stands, before reporting back to the barracks on Monday morning.
0: When Kraft first began seeking out casual sex in his early 20s, he tended to gravitate towards older men. Now 27, those tastes changed. His sexual partners and would-be victims were now in their late teens and early 20s.
1: The change in his preferences could have affected Kraft's relationship with Jeff. Over the next year, they grew more distant. Eventually, they stopped picking up men together, but Kraft continued to cruise the Camp Pendleton area on his own.
0: Around this time, Kraft also started to suffer from constant migraines and debilitating stomach pain, which put him in an even worse mood than usual. More and more, Kraft looked forward to his trips to Camp Pendleton as a momentary escape from the stresses of his failing relationship and worsening health.
1: Due to his health issues, Kraft was on a steady diet of painkillers and antidepressants. It's possible the pills may have even contributed to his growing sadistic urges.
0: A recent study out of the Karolinska Institute in Sweden found that there was a statistically significant increase in the rate of violent crime during the period someone was taking the antidepressants compared to the intervals when they weren't. The hazard ratio pointed to a 40% increased likelihood of violent behavior.
1: With the instability in Kraft's relationship with Jeff and his abuse of medication, he may have been primed to explode. Soon, he found himself completely unable to suppress his murderous thoughts.
0: On December 24, 1972, Kraft met a down-on-his-luck Marine, 20-year-old Edward Daniel Moore. Moore was once a member of the 1st Engineers, 1st Marines Division in Camp Pendleton, For some unknown reason, he'd gone AWOL and became a drifter near the base, often seen playing the harmonica on the
1: beach. Kraft likely employed his unassuming charm and patient ear to disarm Moore. As the former Marine opened up, Kraft would have no trouble earning his trust. At some point, Moore likely followed Kraft to his car, eager for the promise of a hot meal and a warm bed to sleep in.
0: But that December night... Kraft's intentions were more twisted than ever. He wasn't just going to kill Moore. Instead, Moore would become Kraft's guinea pig, the first victim subjected to the full extent of his sadistic violence.
1: Coming up, Kraft's scorecard gets its second entry.
0: Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now back to the story. By late 1972... 27-year-old Randy Kraft was on his way to a stable career. He was working towards his teaching credential while laboring part-time as a forklift operator. To his friends and family, Kraft's life seemed to be back on track for the first time in years.
1: But behind closed doors, Kraft's life was a nightmare. His relationship with his partner Jeff was crumbling. He had grown tired of their open arrangement and wanted to be monogamous, but Jeff refused to stop seeing other men. Over time, his repressed jealousy built up and pushed him closer to the edge.
0: Until finally, on December 24, 1972, he fell off the deep end. That night, Kraft made the hour drive south to Camp Pendleton. He knew Christmas Eve would be a perfect time to prey on lonely soldiers missing home.
1: At a beach near the base, Kraft came across 20-year-old Edward Daniel Moore, The former Marine was out that night searching for a holiday meal. As soon as the smooth-talking Kraft struck up a conversation with him, Kraft knew he would make easy prey.
0: According to Moore's lover, Charles Vines, the young soldier was an open book. He would pour out his soul to anyone who was willing to talk to him.
1: Kraft was a patient listener, and Moore likely let his guard down easily. Odds are that after some food and drinks, they both headed back to Kraft's hotel room.
0: Moore had exchanged sex for food and shelter before, so it's possible the two had consensual sex early in the night. However, things soon took a turn for the worse. Kraft somehow convinced Moore to follow him to an unknown, secluded location, away from the hotel.
1: Listeners be advised, the following descriptions are graphic.
0: Once the two were alone... Kraft bound the naked Marine by his ankles, wrists, and neck. With Moore restrained, Kraft was free to torture him.
1: Kraft raped Moore, scratching and biting his body, leaving deep lacerations on his genitals. It seemed Kraft slowly escalated his brutality through the night, growing more excited as he pushed his violent desires further and further.
0: He ended the attack with a brutal beating – clubbing Moore's face repeatedly until the soldier finally died. With Moore's death, an exhilarated Kraft added his latest victim to the scorecard. The entry read EDM, Moore's initials.
1: Although this was Kraft's second kill, it was filled with many firsts. That Christmas night, he got his first taste of torture and mutilation. He relished having that kind of power over someone, and would go on to do the same to every victim that followed.
0: Kraft may fit the description of a hedonistic serial killer. According to criminologist Dr. Scott Bond, hedonistic serial killers are thrill-seekers who derive immense pleasure from their murderous exploits and from the torture and prolonged suffering of their victims, so they typically kill slowly.
1: Hedonistic killers revel in the pain of others. Though Kraft had gotten some satisfaction from his first murder, he realized that ritualistic torture and defiling his victims' bodies made the thrill that much more intense.
0: The second murder also marked the beginning of Kraft's trophy-taking. He took Polaroids of Moore while he lay unconscious. After killing the young soldier, he also took the only thing Moore treasured, his harmonica. Nottingham Trent University psychologist Mark Griffiths explained that for some murderers, a key part of their enjoyment comes in taking trophies, like photos or personal items from the victim. Having these objects in his possession reminded Kraft of his crimes and likely served as a stimulus to act out again.
1: But of course, the crowning piece of Kraft's twisted game was his makeshift scorecard. With that simple slip of paper, he made killing into a sadistic sport.
0: After marking EDM on his scorecard, Kraft disposed of Moore's body. It didn't take long for it to be found.
1: On December 26, 1972, around 1.45 a.m., authorities received a call from a shocked passerby. When the police arrived just off the side of the 405 Freeway in Seal Beach, none of the officers were prepared for the gruesome scene that awaited them.
0: Moore's face had been so badly battered that he was unrecognizable. Detectives were only able to identify the body because he wore a jacket bearing a U.S. Marine Corps patch with his name stitched on it.
1: He had no shoes on and only one sock. The other was found lodged in his rectum. Medical examiners later concluded he died from the blunt force trauma to his face. The perpetrator had likely used a pipe.
0: The toxicology report showed there were no drugs or alcohol in Moore's system. This was a major difference from Kraft's first victim. The only thing the two murders had in common was that their bodies had been thrown out of a moving vehicle.
1: The clear brutality of Moore's death made Duquette's murder seem tame by comparison. Authorities wouldn't make the connection between them until years later.
0: Instead, they started at square one, After the discovery of Moore's body, Orange County police zeroed in on his stomping grounds near Camp Pendleton. Due to the apparent rage of Moore's killer, police were convinced his murder was a crime of passion. People familiar with Moore all pointed police toward Charles Vines, his on-again, off-again lover.
1: When two detectives showed up to Vines' trailer on December 26th, it didn't seem like he was a person of interest. Or at least, that's not the impression that Vines got from their questioning.
0: They said they only wanted to speak to the person who knew their victim best. They were trying to understand what kind of man Moore was and who he might have gotten mixed up with.
1: During the interrogation, authorities presented Vines with a picture of an unnamed man, a local hustler they suspected was behind Moore's killing. Vines told them he'd never seen the man before.
0: Despite the lack of evidence, police almost immediately focused on this unknown hustler, the wrong man entirely. And they had trouble letting go of their incorrect assumptions. Randy Kraft never made a blip on their radar.
1: Instead, for years, police insisted that Wayne Joseph Duquette and Edward Daniel Moore were killed by someone close to them. These conclusions were almost entirely based on the victim's sexuality, and therefore high-risk lifestyle.
0: Their own biased views against the so-called gay killings prevented them from realizing a serial killer was at large. And now that Kraft had gotten away with murder twice, he was emboldened to lash out much more frequently.
1: Kraft's third victim, known as John Doe 16, was discovered less than two months later, on the morning of February 6, 1973.
0: The body had been dumped by the side of the Terminal Island Freeway in the city of Wilmington, a few miles north of Long Beach. Authorities noticed immediate similarities between Edward Daniel Moore and John Doe 16, who is simply listed as Wilmington in Kraft's scorecard.
1: Although this new victim didn't exhibit the same disturbing level of torture as Moore, they were both strangled with a thin metal cable, likely piano wire.
0: Another similarity was found in the victim's rectum. Both corpses had a single sock stuffed inside, which made police suspect they'd been killed by the same person. They would soon learn that inserting objects into his victim's orifices and defiling their genitals was Kraft's signature. The raw sadism was baffling to detectives.
1: To try to get a better understanding of the unknown sadistic killer, police consulted with Dr. E. Mansell Pattison, a UC Irvine psychiatrist.
0: Pattison wrote to them that the killer desires to be masculine and virile, but does not feel masculine. He vicariously identifies with the beautiful masculine image of the victim. Sodomizing the victim affirms that he is a potent, aggressive, virile, heterosexual male and makes the victim a female, thus reinforcing the killer's self-image of masculinity. Dr. Pattison argued that Kraft's sexual sadism was rooted in self-hate. He temporarily felt better about himself when hurting those younger and better looking than him.
1: Perhaps it's no coincidence that most of his victims fall within the same age group, late teens to mid-twenties. They were attractive and predominantly white.
0: Dr. Pattison also warned investigators that the killer felt no remorse over his action. Therefore, another attack was inevitable.
1: Pattison's words were truly prophetic. The following year would be his most deadly. By the end of 1973, he'd add four more names to his scorecard.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode on Randy Steven Kraft. We'll cover the height of Kraft's sadistic murders and the growing list of names on his
1: scorecard. For more information on Randy Stephen Craft, amongst the many sources we used, we found Angel of Darkness, the true story of Randy Craft and the most heinous murder spree of the century by Dennis McDougall, extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast Originals free on Spotify, Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar.
0: Several of you have asked how to help the show, and if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
0: Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Edlin Ortiz, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.